0: Hi everyone and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking to Michelle Vine. Michelle is an artist who does many things, from creating her own interdisciplinary work, to collaborating with the Theatre of Thunder, to working as a teacher at the Queensland College of Art, to researching naturalist practices, to freelancing as a photographer. She does it all, which gave us a great deal to talk about, and that's a good thing. Now, before we begin, just some regular housekeeping. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can visit us at houseconspiracy.org to learn more about our artists and to see how we can support you. Also, you can join our mailing list. It's worth it. Now, onto the show. Michelle has carted a greater volume of material through to our studio than just about any artist we've ever had at House Conspiracy. This is a good thing because it means that this late in the project, cycle 13 no less, records can still be broken. In her payloads and payloads of material, I've seen memory foam, packing foam, other foams, great cardboard rolls of fabric offcuts, paints, and everything you could imagine would fit in a space described as a feminist affirmation room. I'm speaking this intro into my computer now, just a few minutes before Michelle gets behind this same microphone to whisper affirmations and poems that will punctuate the ambient soundscape the feminist affirmation room is to be drenched in during the open house showcase next week. Michelle will explain this further. And now I give you Michelle Vine. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so you're here at House Conspiracy doing your residency, and I sort of want to kick right off the bat and talk about the project sure. that you're working on, which is sort of a its a self-styled sort of feminist affirmation room. Yes, that's the working title. The working title. Yeah, I hope
1: to come up with something dreadfully more clever, but <laughs> in, in, inevitably sometimes working titles have a way of sticking, but it's a, it's a good way of explaining, I guess, the... The crux of the project. Well, it is what
0: it says on the can. Totally. Uh, but maybe to give a bit more detail, please explain. The... Sure,
1: sure. Um, I, I guess the project came about, I'd been doing a lot of reading of uh, popular feminist writers' own life experiences through biography. and Which f- writers? Uh, Clementine Ford. Um, Fight Like a Girl. Yeah, yeah, and some other <clears throat> US writers whose names escape me terribly. Lena Dunham. Yeah, totally, totally
0: just trying to name ones that I know. <laughs>
1: um, and, and through that, I think um, when you're reading about the lives of other women, there's something in that that forces you or inspires you to reflect then upon your own experiences. And I would find myself scribbling furiously in the margins of, of other people's stories, uh, things from my own story, or perhaps even just oh, yes, you know, wow, yeah, I've got to do that or I'm inspired by that and and it might be something quite positive or affirming or it it might have thrown a a negative cast on perhaps a formative experience I had that then suddenly I'm I'm re-looking at my own life with a a critical feminist viewpoint and unpacking things that have happened and perhaps the impact that they're having on me still today that I haven't really realised, you know. Um, So, yeah, so from all these writings I just had this idea of, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great to have this space where you just could take a break from from all the um, the negative influences that we're we're quite often experiencing as women around body image, um, and amongst you know other things, and so yeah, it was just it was just this idea of respite, you know, and comfort. What does it mean to, what does comfort mean and safety, um, and I had been thinking of it for a while, and when I saw the opportunity for House Conspiracy to 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 apply for that, I thought, wow, what a perfect thing! I need a room. I have an idea that requires a room,
0: right? Like the idea of a domestic space. Yeah, almost. definitely the idea of a domestic space,
1: but also that hybrid space or this creation of new territory. In that, you know, this is an interesting space to work in because, you know, it's ostensibly an art space, but it's very much a home. You know, it's very much a, a domestic space, and um, so much of the violence that women experience you know, yes, we can talk about things in the media, but ultimately it's within our intimate partnerships that, that that's played out and that is played across the domestic stage. So there's something really poignant about that setting,
0: being in the domestic space. And so what's it been like being in this space and reacting to it?
1: Um, I've really enjoyed it. I, I think space is so critical for artists to be able to make. Um, you know, being here within the space... It's amazing, like I come into the room and suddenly I'm like, right, I'm on, you know, it's game on. There is something about having access to that studio and I, and I think of, you know, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Uh, so it's so delightful to have a room of one's own uh, and and the support of the stipend for materials to be able to just say, right, okay, what can I do? So um, I'm sure, yeah, you've you just seen me trape so many materials into my room, so now I'm in the in the knuckle-down create stages, but I'm really... Um, working on a series of sculptures that are very tactile um, I, I started researching the idea of a security blanket or a comfort object or you know in psychology they even talk about what's called a I think it's a transitory object yep and yep. so these are these are things that children hold on to as comfort when they're not with their parents or or as they're um moving through different stages of development so I'm just an incredibly tactile person. I love touching everything and I feel that that was kind of conditioned out of me in a way. So I, I'm really enjoying playing with the idea of making big sculptures that people
0: can come in and touch and hug and squeeze and be hugged back. Yeah, you use the, uh, the, the phrase the empathic embrace.
1: Yes, definitely. Which definitely. I really
0: like even just on a linguistic level.
1: Yeah, it is a beautiful turn of phrase. What is it to... Embrace and what is it to be embraced? Um, you know, how can we do that within a space and then by creating spaces within spaces um, and within our personal space? And, I, and it's, a lot of it's, I guess, reflective of changes in my circumstances. I was married for a long time, been separated and divorced, and, you know, totally enjoying. A different, a different phase of my life. But there is a friend said to me, well, "What do you really want one day?" And I just said, "If I could just have a hugging robot that could like spell check my theses and my writings for me, I'd be really, really happy." So, um, those are coming. Yeah, those are coming. But in the meantime, I'm making sculptures that hug you. <laughs> um, I, I haven't quite worked on the AI spell checking functions of them yet, but you know, maybe in house conspiracy in ten years' time, I can I can work on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Once we have a million dollars, yes, per artist in funding. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I think I actually am not being facetious. Actually, very genuinely believe that's that's part of the future, for better or worse. Yeah, is huggy robots.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Let's see how that pans out for you guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so within this room, you've got projected words as well and yes. um, spoken words as well, whispered words. Is that right? Or are you? I'm still.
1: I'm still experimenting with the sound, so I want it to have that sort of feel of uh, yeah. Either this, this certain intimacy of of whispered sounds. There was amazing work at. Um, Documenta that I I managed to get to Documenta this year and went to both Athens and Castle and um, had seen part of this work in Castle but then just randomly was on a mythological tour of Athens and there was a woman walking up the street holding this speaker and it was a whispering work And so the speaker was concealed somewhere in her body, but she just sort of walked with this regal procession and these whispers just echoed through the cobblestone streets in this tiny area of the ancient city of Athens where I was. Um, And, yeah, it really was quite profound to have this kind of very intimate sound in a really open space. So... I haven't done, I haven't worked a lot with sound before, but it's an area that I'm really excited to start developing and thinking about. When you're looking at a at a space and creating a space and creating an embodied space, um, you know how all of the senses can be engaged and the importance of sound within that mix. So, yeah, I hope to sort of start experimenting on some some sounds that might work, and you know, maybe some whispers and maybe just completely discernible as well so we'll see
0: so um you work though a lot with artists who work in sound you work with the theater of thunder and yes. yes whatnot but you yourself do not produce sound um or
1: I I, I would not consider myself a musician or a sound artist at, at this stage I think um, I've always lived vicariously through the sounds of other people around me I I did you know did the usual music study at school and high school and uh, my dad had a PA hire in lighting business so I grew up uh, working as a roadie and operating sound and lighting desks and things and both my daughters are both studying music and both are musical performers. And, um, yeah, I do a lot of performance art with Theatre of Thunder and, uh, and that's co-directed by Megan Janet White and Luke Yarnister and a huge part of, of what they do is um, bringing really interesting ambient trance electronica sounds into performance art using Japanese buto techniques. So it's that sort of collision and um, hybridity of forms that I find really exciting about what they're doing. It's visually spectacular but it engages m- more than just the visual in terms of the sensory experience of a, of a performance. Um, So I think, yeah, when when you're involved with all these amazing creative people here in West End and in Brisbane, it can't help but inspire your practice and and move you in other directions, I suppose.
0: And then um, how do you then balance your sort of you've got sort of got three practices within the arts you know you're an artist well you've got four really you're yeah an I, artist. I'm a multi-headed beast
1: <laughs> yes yeah
0: yeah you're you're the hydra of house conspiracy <laughs> I, thank
1: you um, I like that
0: <laughs> uh no but, but you know you you work as a teacher yep. at QCA yep. um you're a collaborator you're your own artist and you're also a freelancer, yes. um, sort of in terms of sort of photography yeah. and whatnot, and particularly sort of with those last two, with collaboration and with freelancing. How do you, how do you balance that? When is one one thing and not the other? Um,
1: I I find the boundaries always really clear because it comes down to I think who's initiated the idea. Uh, and ownership? And ownership, yeah. And you, I think in, in collaborations you have to be really transparent and you have to have those hard discussions really early on as to who's doing what, who owns what and how that's going to pan out. And I I guess that's um, – I've had a lot of experience in business so for me it's, it's kind of easy to have those discussions and I love working with people who are really transparent because you know what they want you to do and you know your role and – and you can just kind of like revel in that and really riff off each other and it, it, you take care of business and then the creativity just kind of flows. Um, for my own projects, uh, I think I've a lot of the work that I've done, I have done, like for my own creative projects, I've, I generally am working alone but I'm starting to collaborate more and more um, and that just allows you to take your work to a whole other level when you bring in other people with different skill sets. So I first experienced that when I studied in Germany. I went on exchange and studied at the Kunsthochschule in Kassel and was working under um, the amazing um, Professor Fiona Tan, a um, really well-known video artist. And we did this intensive video workshop and I'd sort of, you know, pitched my idea and another student <coughs> sorry, another student had pitched their idea and she's like, you guys, your ideas are so similar, you should work together. And that was the first time I had worked Collaboratively on a video work with yep. with someone else, and it was so good because um, um, the other artist did all of the performance in the camera, and I got to just step back from in front of the lens, and uh, and direct and so on. Because she'd never made video work before, so it was it was such a great uh, like symbiotic great experience. relationship. Oh, totally, totally, I loved it. And after that, I was like totally sold. I'm like, yes, I should do more collaborations. So, yeah. I'd like to do more going forward, for sure.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's where a lot of the industry is moving towards collaborative and particularly sort of interdisciplinary collaborations.
1: Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, I think when you're choosing collaborators too, and I've, I've discussed this a lot with both um, Megan and Luke from Theatre of Thunder, um, you know, like... <sighs> When you're choosing collaborators, you want to choose people who have different skills to your own. It's like don't go and collaborate with someone who's doing almost exactly what you're already doing, because like it doesn't necessarily add anything to you. It's sort of it can dilute the you in in the collaboration. Um, so yeah, you know, so when I do work with Theatre of, of Thunder, I am just there as a performer, but I also collaborate them with as a documenter. for yeah. So the documentation I have a lot more creative voice in and I've developed um, in collaboration with them my own aesthetic that's been going on for more than 12 months as to how we document everything they do but when I'm in performance mode I love it I get to like switch off and I'm not driving the bus I'm just a passenger and I'm doing what I'm directed or I'm uh, you know very much at the um, at the mercy of somebody else's creative vision which I actually love and certain surrender to that
0: is that is that hard is that something that has been hard to learn? Are there any particular sort of tips and tricks there in sort of how you go about sort of drawing, like you said, those clear lines in sort of role divisions and ownership divisions and who um, gets to I think, drive I think, which bus?
1: Yeah, I think maybe it's just because I'm, you know, I'm not a spring chicken and I've, I've had enough life experience in other areas to let go of ego Um, I think when I was a lot younger, I would have just wanted to be, you know, in control of everything and, and I can be quite controlling, but in it, it's a pedantic way in which like the, the small elements and details of the work are the things that really take it to the next level. So as an artist, you do have to control those things, but it's lovely to just let go of that when it's not your work. And so for me, I come from a place of, um, absolute respect for other artists that I work for so I think that's choosing the people you work for is really important because if you respect their practice if you respect their work then you'll have no problem just saying yeah like this is your jam like you totally got this I'm I'm just soaking this up and learning but this is my area of expertise and so it's knowing when to um to push and when to accept in terms of yeah you know, what your brief is and and um the contribution you make and knowing that you're not an expert on everything and just accepting that, you know, we're all beginners at something, we're all intermediate at something and experts at other things, depending on our journey, you know. Yeah,
0: Yeah, rad. Yeah, so, yeah, it sounds like, um, yeah, very much it's sort of a a tool sharpened by experience. Yeah, I think so. More than anything else. Yeah. Um, Another thing that you do sort of in terms of hats (laughs) of which you have many because you're a many-headed beast. Yes. Um, and therefore need many hats. Yes. Otherwise you wouldn't be sun safe. That's right. Um, you work sort of in, in this sort of crossover space uh, between science and art. Yes. Um, particularly I sort of, not only sort of, you know, using scientific processes but sort of examining art and presentation of art through a scientific lens. I particularly enjoy um roadside archaeology of yours which is a whole bunch of sort of rusted old cans and debris that has been found I assume by the side of the road um and then you've flattened out and shown it out like taxonomy like butterflies in a Queensland museum um so what sort of draws you to that sort of very clinical scientific presentation and style of looking at the world
1: Um, It's been a really interesting engagement over the last two years with that particular project. That work is one from a series of works which came out of, um, uh, you know, a long-term discursive project I've had on German naturalist Amalie Dietrich. And I first learned about her story in in Berlin and I thought, who is this amazing woman who'd been in Queensland and I'd never heard of her? And here I was, a Queenslander living in Germany, and and knew nothing of that. So when I came back to... Uh, Australia I got some funding to get a little camper van and you know go through north and central Queensland where she had lived collecting objects and you know and I've I've trained myself as an amateur naturalist so I can uh, you know I was collecting insects and um, plant specimens to be um, shared with institutions both here and back in Germany as part of the project I was really interested in how an artist and, and an amateur could um, contribute to scientific research, so it was important to me that the art science work that I do is not just window dressing. It's not sort of you know a, an art cake with a smear of science, um, you know, icing on top. Um, so I guess with most things I do, it's like just really embodied. So you know, I have microscopes. I, I've uh, I worked with entomologists here and over in Germany, being trained in the field and taking those skills in terms of collecting that. So the scientific presentation really came out of a genuine sense of engagement with the science element of it. But, of course, when you go into the field, you take yourself there. You're not, you know, I'm not a scientist. Um, My dad was a scientist and I certainly was a great science student at school, but... uh,
0: What sort of scientist?
1: Oh, he was an industrial chemist.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. My grandfather was an industrial chemist.
1: Yeah, yeah. So... um, so I always did really well in science because I'd sort of say to dad, oh, dad, you know, here's a simple science question. And it would spiel into like a 40 minute discussion of nuclear fusion in the sun and, and, and so on. So I was a very, very well informed science student because of my amazing dad. Um, but yeah, so that scientific, I, I think there's something really beautiful in taking objects and Recontextualizing them and seeing them differently. I mean, that's kind of what we do as artists is we take things and we shed a light on them so people can look at them in a new way.
0: Yeah, I always like to think that um, my working definition of like art is like it's something that teaches you how to see.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that definition for sure. And so for the work that you referred to, Roadside Archaeology, uh, it was a particular late afternoon I was driving from Lake Elphinstone, which is pretty much just a a dairy area in central Queensland, Um, trying to get back to Bowen by sunset and I pulled up to have a drink because I was tired and I just looked down and there was these amazing objects on the side of the road. So I'd pulled up on this mining road where it looked like for years and years um, miners had knocked off shift, turned up there in their utes, there was old couches and there was just rubbish strewn everywhere but um the pieces you referred to had actually become integrated with the earth. It was like the landscape was
0: consuming consuming
1: them, consuming them. totally that was exactly what it what it felt like and so I was there because i went oh, i found these amazing um uh animal remains and I was collecting insects of those but I just kept being pulled back to these beautiful objects and so it spent about two hours with entomology forceps prizing them out of the dry crusty earth and they'd, they'd been flattened not by me um, but actually by all of the semi trailers and trucks that that had pulled up so yeah it was about 2 or 3 hours and the sun was starting to go down and I missed my deadline of getting to my next stop in Bowen but I, it was definitely worth it to spend that time picking up rubbish on the side of the road in central queensland so
0: And it is it is really beautiful you know I I say when I describe it as clinical I don't I yeah. don't mean that in terms of like stark because yeah. it's not like it's... It's
1: almost forensic, I think.
0: If forensic is yeah. a nice... I mean, and archaeology is really just forensics plus time yeah. Um, yeah. in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. It's like what if we take... I just like that idea of taking these really everyday objects that have been through this extraordinary process in this landscape that most Australians do not get to see, um, the min- the you know remote mining roads in central Queensland, and it's and by bringing them back into the gallery i mean they're bringing all of their history with them they're bringing that landscape with them you know their surface is in totally imbued with the earth and you know some people in the gallery have said to you know had said to me oh are they ceramic did you make them like they really Cause people in real life to look twice and examine what they are, and it takes a, people sometimes quite a bit of time to work out that, that yeah they're just Jim Beam cans, or you know a bit of Jack Daniels for the bit Green of Jack, Jack Daniels, bit of Bundy too, double black in Queensland, the get it. Forex.
0: Oh man, it's all all the good it's stuff. It's all there. <laughs> I actually want to ask you about that. Is sort sure. of like that that idea of um, not about Forex, um, <laughs> but uh, about about that idea of sort of bringing things back to the gallery and particularly what you were saying earlier about space, right? Because the white wall gallery is a really interesting space sort of in terms of sort of the politics around it, the, the, the nature of it, the aesthetics of it. I, I love a good white wall. Yeah. Um, what is, what is sort of the relationship they're bringing in particularly like sort of found objects that are then arranged and it's almost like a curational artist process. Yeah. Um, which, um, yeah, is is like really interesting. We've had a number of people through House Conspiracy who have very much done more curation than creation, which is a really interesting sort of postmodern shift where we sort of go, well, there's, there's not a huge difference.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so long as it's an original thought, but, um.
1: Oh, look, I blame Deschamps,
0: you know. <laughs> I blame Deschamps for a lot of things. Yeah. Um, not many of them good. Um. But uh, no, I, I wanted to ask you, sort of bringing bringing those found objects from sort of remote areas back into the back into the gallery. Is, is there a certain like is is there, what's the difference in the reaction there and the relation there to just having it in your living room or in a box that you pull out at parties? Because um, you're great. That's what you do at parties,
1: uh, mate. Totally, I always pull out my collections at parties. Look at this cool thing I have. Um, I'll start with a. I think you know. I want to answer that in a couple of ways. If, if I start with the the nexus at, at collecting, like what I'm thinking about when I'm collecting. When I'm collecting, I'm not thinking about um, I'm not thinking about it being in a space at the end. I'm just like, oh my god, look at the texture, look at the surface. This is interesting, and I and I just take. And it's through that process of developing an exhibition that you start to think okay well what do these things that I have been innately attracted to you know what role could they serve and sometimes they're just so beautiful in and of their own that you want to display them and you want to show them Um, other times they might just serve for inspiration or the work the work may turn out to be the photograph in that sense Um, you know there's so many contemporary artists who are working with presenting collected objects and I think I mean art is such a loaded term. Artist is such a loaded term and sometimes I just I like story. What do you story. mean by a loaded? Well, term? you know, there's so many expectations associated with that, you know. Um, a lot of the time when I tell people I'm an artist, they'll say what do you paint? Um you
0: know, people outside
1: the arts obviously.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a, it's the easiest cultural touchstone.
1: Yes, definitely, definitely, you know. And I, and I think I had to I had to like push my way into the painting major and then decide it wasn't for me in order to, like, even let that, let that go from myself internally mm-hmm. to get to this point where I'm like, yeah, I'm just picking up rubbish and putting it in a gallery and it's art, man, and it's awesome, you know. Um, but, yeah, I like to just think of myself as a storyteller and I think that these objects that we have in our lives around us carry their own stories. There's a term in um, cultural anthropology um, – Object biography, and it's when we've started to uh, in, in material culture, and when we've started to look at museum collections and things in museums, and seeing that the objects themselves have their own history, and they're part of a history of transaction and exchange, and you know how did that object come to become into a collection? Whereas previously, perhaps our understanding of objects may have been limited to just their use. Their original intention and the and association, you know, they're their value by association. Some it's Winston Churchill's pen, so therefore it's a it's a valuable object right. and we should display it. Um, so for me, it comes back to my role as an artist, as a storyteller, and the fact that objects carry their own stories. And I think if some of that you can glimpse by looking at surface or how an object's been changed in an environment, that's a really interesting story to
0: tell visually so in a space. So it's about drawing attention to stories that are already there.
1: Yeah. Almost. yeah, Yeah. And it's sort of like anyone looking at any art object is going to write their own story by their own perception you know them coming to the object and and the space and having their experience within the space so you know we can't dictate that so um I just sometimes think oh if I think that's really cool someone else might think it's really cool too. so then
0: then there's maybe like another interesting question which um is what's the difference between a a collection like this displayed in an art gallery versus in a museum
1: yeah um
0: because there is a difference even yeah, totally. just in audience expectations.
1: Totally. I, and I think part of, part of the ideas associated with this kind of practice is actually critiquing and exploring that very idea that, that you talk about in your question, which is, well, what actually happens when I put it in an art context and what, what happens when it's in a museum context? And um, I think there's, a, there's always sort of an element of critique in that. And it's, it's interesting that over the last decade in particular, there's been a huge increase in interest in art science. And so there's some things that we think actually, well, that seems a bit more museum or that seems a bit more, you know, art. But the boundaries are just quite blurred, I find. And it's kind of fun playing in the edges of that and playing with those conventions of display and critiquing them because it makes... They're sort of shortcuts in a way, you know, if I was to take all these objects and sort of pile them up, we might find difficulty in, in reading them in a certain way. But by imitating, and it's it's not parody, but it's sort of, sometimes it's a bit of a pastiche of...
0: It's like using the form.
1: Yeah, using using the form, but in a new context of, of art. Um, and in that same exhibition, I set up an entomology lab in an art space, and I had... Um, what is an
0: entomology lab? Oh, like? so
1: entomology is the study of insects. Yep. So um, I brought in a microscope and I had a live feed to a, a big screen video so people could actually glimpse at uh, the microscopic world that they wouldn't normally otherwise see, except if they're working behind the scenes in the museum in a natural history department or they happen to be studying entomology or so on. And And so for me I felt that was using the tools of science but to tell stories of just how amazing... Our planet is on this really micro level that we are so busy in our lives to just walk past all the time and so it's it's almost like when someone comes into an art space you have them as this captive audience for a minute or two to show them or reveal something it comes back to what we're talking about with arts just shedding a light on something so in that case Using these tools of science like the microscope, but you know looking and really looking, but not not really looking for scientific purposes I and mean, we're not there to identify new species or whatever, but to actually appreciate the the aesthetics of the natural
0: world in a very unexpected context it almost it almost seems to me, and I'm sure uh, this has been written about by people smarter than me, but um, it, it seems it seems to me that kind of the difference that we're both drawing here is is a difference between sort of a museum being focused on what you said, like the informational aspect, you know, yeah. what's the what's the species, what's the Latin taxonomy
1: yeah.
0: of this creature or of this of this plant, whereas whereas for 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 an art gallery and for, for displaying it in an art context, it's very much about that 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 appreciation and that that narrative. Of a thing, maybe I, I,
1: I yeah, I think I think it's another layer, I think it can still have the other as well,
0: yeah, but where... I wonder if it's to do with the skew of focus,
1: yeah, I, I think perhaps um, it's, it's just that we have certain expectations of what we might see when we come into an art space and how we're expected to act um. And those those are great because they can sort of work for you in that, you know, if you put certain works in in a certain way, people, you can sort of expect that people will react a, a certain way. But I really like doing things like going, yeah, you can touch it. So I had I had people, you know, touching insects and picking them up and choosing their specimen and looking under microscopes. And with the work that I'm doing here with Cow's Conspiracy, you know, everything's designed to be tactile and to be touched and to engage with in all the senses. Um, so it's sort of, yeah, I think you, you get people in art spaces who have very inquiring minds and who are interested in new, new ideas and, and new ways of seeing and um, new ways of thinking. Or, or they're just there for the free wine and cheese, you know. Like, Which is a good, good reason. Is, hey, no judgment, no judgment. I'm, I'm there for the wine and cheese most of the time.
0: Um, I'm not. You're not? No, I'm taking You're more it off. of a beer I'm, man. I'm taking <laughs> Uh, thanks for ruining my joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a, whole, had a whole build up there. It was all timed. It was, oh man, what a. Yeah, you've got to be quick around me. John. Damn, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame, is what it is. Um, yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and I think it's, it's that idea that people see what they expect to see. Yeah, and what you expect to see in a museum is different from what you expect, and that's culturally coded. Yeah, uh, you know what yeah. you expect in a gallery, yeah. same as what you expect in a garden is different from both those things as well. Yeah. But they might all be stick insects.
1: Yeah, but I mean, look, I think there's some really interesting museums doing very in- innovative things, and in some cases, you know, there's some some museums might be far more in- if innovative than than um, other art spaces. So I think there's much to learn. Um, when you're looking wider and casting your net wider than than just sticking with a, an art institution in terms of your inspirations and also even just how to, you know, put on a show, exhibit or engage with an audience. I love the hands-on nature of a lot of um, museums and natural history museums. Yeah, particularly really... I'm thinking
0: about Berlin. Like there's yeah. a lot there and I was there for the Biennale yes. last year. And there was. So was
1: I. Oh. Yes. Berlin go. Biennale. Yeah. 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 It was yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. yeah it was um, great. But I'm thinking
0: about in that, the School of Economics.
1: I didn't get to all of the venues, I have to confess. Ah. Yeah. But I did enjoy it. Did you try the VR headset?
0: I did. I was there on opening night. Right. And did you, you actually.
1: That would have been a huge queue. Mm. Yeah. That sure was would have amazing. been amazing. Or, or, augmented reality. So it was very
0: very cool it will no one will care about that artwork in one year's time
1: yeah, um, yeah but
0: yeah. it was the first time I'd ever had an opportunity to interact with that technology and what it did was interesting
1: yeah yeah definitely did you get on it yeah totally yeah. totally um and I think it's yeah there was a lot there was a lot of ways it was one of the ones that I found most interesting and watching the audience reactions it was it's almost you're, you're in this own, your own little pod with this VR headset on, standing on this balcony overlooking. Um, uh, the, the, this, it was this called Paris?
0: Uh, it's the, uh, it's that the archway.
1: French. Yeah, it's the Brandenburg, gauge, Brandenburg but Gate, but I'm trying to remember what Paris Platz. Yeah. Yeah, it's Paris Platz. Um, and you could be doing anything, you could be seeing anything. And it's almost like there's an interesting analogy with economics in some way because it's like the economics of desire is there's there's only one headset, only one person can experience it. everyone's queuing up. They want this experience. They have no idea what this experience actually is, you know. But um, that's another really interesting, intriguing way of creating an embodied space um, in which you become dislocated from your own body. You're not really even realising what you look like as you move and everyone in the queue is watching you do these very odd kind of movements as you're reacting to this reality that you're seeing, but you're transformed into another space altogether. Um so yeah, it's it's uh, from a spatial point of view, I find that whole experience really interesting. Well, the yeah. possibilities of it, not yeah. necessarily yeah, 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 even yeah, yeah. what the content of that work itself was, but to say, wow, this is really interesting areas where, where um, spatial art practice could go.
0: I think, I think it's definitely fair to say that work was interesting. The, the reason I say I don't think it'll be thought of or remembered is that just it was made on very primitive technology that yeah. has, you know, by Moore's law, um, which I know is now defunct but still operates probably in emergent technologies like that, yeah. um, very much like we've come leaps and bounds in VR since 2016. Definitely. Um, but, yeah, uh, and, and, you know, speaking about economics, it's like, well, Berlin, you know, the, that, that gallery there is right next to the central bank. Yeah. Um which essentially operates as the central bank of Germany uh, of Europe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um yes. So it's it's a very it's a very interesting city, I Definitely. would say. Um yeah. but everyone who talks about Berlin is annoying to everyone else. Oh, we were just annoying um,
1: everyone now who's yeah. um who's who's listening to the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like, I
0: feel like it becomes a little bit of a trope like artists Going to Berlin and then yeah. coming back Yeah, it's, it's
1: and so tropey, but it's so awesome at the same it, time. It
0: really is, yeah, uh, it, it, yeah it, 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 it's not, people don't just talk about it because it's a, like a hyped meme, like it really is. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I've had this extended engagement with Germany over two years. I've been yeah. um, four times uh, in the last, you know, two years, uh, my initial exchange, which went for about seven and a half months, which I studied at, in Castle, and then... Um, you know, went to Berlin when I could, but it was kind of good not living there in a sense that like I still could, you know, have this really solid established life in another part of Germany and then, you know, tap into the the crazy over the top amazingness that was Berlin yeah, when Berlin I needed to. Yeah, Berlin became and like a treat, still yeah, remain a treat. Yeah, yeah, totally. Then in. pull my head back in and actually, you know, be a student and study at university and do work and...
0: Yeah, I think I'd find it very difficult to be a student. Yeah, I think I would just
1: learning. never turn up to any classes. There's just always something going on, and yeah. you know. But not if... that
0: I turn up to classes now.
1: <laughs> Are you still studying? That doesn't matter. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just about to go for another round, so you know. Yeah.
0: PhD? Uh, no, just my honors year. Oh yeah, great. Yeah. Um, what's your thesis looking like to be?
1: Um, I'm I'm really interested in artists who use female artists who use self-disclosure within their practice mm-hmm. and you know self we can talk about self-testimony or it's it's when you're telling stories again storytelling uh, when you're telling stories about your own life um, and how that can be used as a disruptive feminist art strategy you know and how that work is received in both art context and the wider context is something that really interests me I have done a lot of work Uh, based on my own life and I I write a bit of um, sort of poetic text fragments and accompany that with both um, self-portraits of myself, which I use photography for, but also will use drawing as well. So yeah, it's something a bit different to what I've been doing, but really back to work I was making several years ago. Um, Because I, I, you know, when, when I look in the media, I don't see a lot of Experiences, particularly of older women, particularly around sexuality and into our intimate lives that uh, reflect my own experiences. And I hear that from other women as well. You know, you can, there's a certain amount of invisibility that happens um, if you're, you know, not of a certain age or of a particular body shape or whatever. It's like you're,
0: you know, you, you, these, these parts of your life don't exist. Um, Do you know Chrissy Nin? No, I don't. Uh, she was a Brisbane-based writer, largely a writer of erotica. She works at Abnerita. Yep. Okay. Um, you should absolutely engage with her I work. I totally I think will. she's engaging with these, these exact...
1: Yeah, subjects and I think fantastic. she'd love to
0: sit down and chat. Yeah. Um, so I'll do a warm intro or something but that's boring <laughs> boring business talk on oh, a, I, a, a podcast I, that's for I, the kids. I, I, um, I love it when all the little um, connections come together
1: and that's kind of why you come to somewhere like House Conspiracy. Well, that's, that's, yeah that's half the yeah, point right? It's it's to, to have these conversations building. and relationship building and so on. Yeah. Which is
0: exactly why we broadcast a selection of these conversations um, to everyone but to sort of wrap up so you're moving into your honours year next year yeah. you've got your showcase here at House Conspiracy which pretty much Caps off 20, uh, 2017 right on the 29th. And yeah, then go out with a bang. Go out with a bang. And then 2018, um, aside from honours, have you got any sort of plans lined up or are you are going to really focus in because it is a hectic year?
1: Yeah, look, it's, it's a really hectic year, um, but, um, you know, I'm a workaholic glutton for punishment who mm-hmm. doesn't need a lot of sleep and loves to multitask. Like the multi-headed hydra that you've pointed out that I am, um, I have a solo show coming up in May. So the works that I'm working on here, I'm hoping to like, you know, really expand and you know, bigger room, bigger space, bigger projections. Do you know and where? What space? Yeah, that's in? going to be in the Project Gallery at QCA. Great. Yeah. So that'll be in in May. Um, so those that can't make it to the, the, the showcase can toddle along to there, and you know, continue my work with Theatre of Thunder performing. There's some exciting things that we're doing there, and I'm gonna Yeah, I've got a, another series of photo works that I'm working on with another collaborator and you're continuing sculpture works and, and hopefully continuing to um, teach in, in sculpture and maybe photography again like I did last year at QCA. So a um, bit of freelance on the side. Sounds like you got it figured out. Many fingers, many pies. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Just have a good diary. That's yeah, it. oh, and yeah,
0: you've got to keep a hell of a schedule. Yeah. And learn
1: moment. and learn to say no and, like, you know, just take on projects that you love with people that you love, and you know it makes for a good year. So another year like two thousand and seventeen would be really great.
0: It's been the best year so. Great. Yeah, great. I always like hearing people be positive about twenty seventeen. Um, I think it is important that we are positive about totally. the best year ever. Um, now, where can people find you online, Michelle, just as we wrap up?
1: Yeah, they can find me on uh, my website. So that's uh, www.michellevine.com or .au. I, uh, they both go to the same space. Ah, a
0: redirect. A redirect. You oh my are God. a thorough individual.
1: Yeah, I kind of build websites on the side as well, so I'm a bit thorough that's like That's right. That. <laughs> we were talking about this way, <laughs> yeah, way back. Yeah, So, uh, and, you know, and, yeah, Facebook and Instagram, they're all there. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for sitting down and talking.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a, nice it's been a pleasure.
0: The House Conspiracy podcast is produced at House Conspiracy by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. Mixing and editing by Tyler William Morrison. And music by the Reverend Isha Ramdas. If you'd like to support House Conspiracy, you can do so at houseconspiracy.org slash donate. And you can learn more about what we offer here at houseconspiracy.org. Thanks for listening.